You can turn a walk through an elaborate old cemetery into a life-affirming experience when you visit Recoleta in Buenos Aires. You can't take your wealth with you when you die, but you can leave something behind for everyone to remember you. Coming up, we explore places that touch on the intersection between this world and the next. The folks at Atlas Obscura can point you to hundreds of fascinating crypts and graveyards to visit, all with their own stories to tell. If you want sort of spooky religious sites, Italy really is going to be your, the best bang for your buck. And a clergywoman tells us how her travels have shown her the ways different societies confront mortality and honor the body we leave behind. It's not just dust when we're done with it. And that's a lot of the rituals of mourning of death have to do with treating the body with respect. We're traveling with the not-so-grim reaper in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Just in time for Halloween, All Souls Day, and the Day of the Dead, we're about to learn how people in different parts of the world honor the end of life. An Episcopal deacon from Iowa tells us what she's discovered in her travels with the Grim Reaper, and we'll hear about some of the unusual places in the Atlas Obscura Cabinet of Curiosities, sites that run the gamut from sacred to creepy. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Cemeteries can be some of the most interesting, moving, and artistic sites in a city. You can learn a lot about a society by visiting its leading graveyards. And they welcome tourists. Robert Wright is a guide who's lived and guided in Buenos Aires for many years, and he considers that city's historic cemetery the most important site in town. Robert joins us now to talk about why he loves taking curious visitors through Buenos Aires' Recoleta Cemetery. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Cemeteries are fascinating, and a lot of people don't realize it, but they really give a fun insight. We'll get to Buenos Aires in a minute, but let's talk cemeteries in general. As you've traveled, what are some tips for travelers to recognize the importance of cemeteries in their sightseeing? Everyone makes a big deal about going to churches. Yeah. And a lot of times that's where baptisms take place. But then you forget that there's the end of the road as well. And the way that people build their mausoleums, their family tombs, that's how they want to be remembered. So it's a great insight to a family's sense of their historical preservation. Also, they're great repositories of art and architecture. If you love sculpture, <laughs> what better place to go? It's an outdoor museum. And every cemetery is free? Exactly. You could, exactly. You it's could, free. You could pay a, a buck for one of the maps that shows you where the famous people mm -hmm. are. It always kind of gives me a little bit better sense of the history of a place as well that I'm visiting because that way I can maybe learn about some of the important players in history that you don't really get access to in an art museum. We have a very ethnocentric look at who matters. It's, mm -hmm. it's the way we learned history. But if you go to a cemetery, you can see by the nature of the prominence of that tomb who were the big who shots were the in big that ones. community. Mm -hmm. I just always go to Europe. I'm thinking everywhere in Europe. Every great city has Every a cemetery. Every single city. Now, you have an experience in Buenos Aires. You lived in Buenos Aires. And what is so unique about the Recoleta Cemetery in the big city in uh, Argentina? I lived in Argentina for 14 years, Rick, and I, I still remember to this day the very first time I stepped foot in that cemetery because it's like a little miniature city within a city. It has a variety of tombs and mausoleums, but it's like you're taking a walk through uh, just four city blocks that covers all of Argentine history. You've got the founders of the city. You've got all the first presidents that are there. Every single moment in history, even like the very controversial period of the Perón era, 
because Eva Peron is buried there as well. Now, I would love to learn about that, but I wouldn't know how. Mm. If I went to that cemetery, would there be a, a guided tour available? Or There's or? actually maps that you can buy at the entrance gate if you want, mm-hmm. uh, and there are also uh, guided tours available. Usually there are people there that you can do a, a tour with in any language. Okay, so an English-speaking uh, mm-hmm. yes. tourist to our Buenos Aires, you could do that at the Recoleta yeah. Cemetery. Take me on a walk, Robert. What am I going to see? Is it sarcophagi? Is it little houses that have, you know, uh, families in them? Uh, who am I going to bump into? Uh, paint a picture for us. I think when you, you're first going to walk through a very large grand entrance gate, and it sort of sets the tone for the, the entire experience because you know you're walking into somewhere very important through mm-hmm. that large gate. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, the whole cemetery opens up before you, and you have neat little rows mm-hmm. of uh, not usually tombstones, because the tombstones were from a previous era, but once it became really popular to be buried in Recoleta Cemetery, they started building larger and larger family mausoleums. Okay. So instead of walking in and thinking you're going to find grass plots or mm-hmm. crosses or tombstones, there are still a few that are left over, tucked in between little corners, but there are, it's mainly large mausoleums. You paint this picture, and many of us travelers have been to the Père Lachaise Cemetery uh, yeah. in Paris. Yeah. And you walk through this grand entry, and it's, it's got a street plan. Sure. You know, there's the main street, there's exactly. side streets, there's neighborhoods. Right. You have to know how to find your loved ones. You have yeah. to. <laughs> and, uh, and then you've got some people that just have a little slab, and, mm-hmm. there's, and, and there's a lot of these uh, stone homes. Sure. Buildings. Mausoleums, that, yeah. Mausoleums. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is so exciting to have this extra dimension of sightseeing in our travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Wright. And Robert writes um, a tour guide who for years has lived and guided in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Ed's calling in from Vancouver in Washington. Ed, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Robert. Yeah, we were just there on a family trip last month, and uh, we actually went back twice to the cemetery. It was just so interesting with all the, like you say, these little buildings where you could look in and you can see... Uh, well, you can see, you know, the wealth of the families. You can see, um, you know, what was important to them and how they wanted to be remembered. My question had to do more about, you know, how do they decide um, how these these little buildings are built and how many... It's not just one person. This is a, really a family in there. And it almost looked like, you know, you could look into some of them and you almost see, like, You've little bunk beds in there. Where yeah. Every coffin. Yeah, little levels. <laughs> Uh, It actually has to do with space requirements. Okay, so if this cemetery is four city blocks, it's built into the urban fabric of the city because initially cemeteries were located far from residential areas. But as the city grows, the, the cemetery was actually surrounded by the city. So the cemetery has no space to expand. So basically, you're, you have to reuse whatever space you have inside. You'll build a very fancy mausoleum, but you'll have underground storage. Mm. And the idea is that by the time great-grandpa is in there, you're going to have room for other people coming along in future generations, because by the time his great-grandson is time to pass away, there's not a whole lot left of great-grandpa. He's just basically ashes. And, and he's so less re- he's less he's, remembered. And he's make- less remembered, and he takes up less space. So you can move him <laughs> into a different container. And I know this sounds gruesome, but it's it is what it is. Uh, and then you move him into a different container, and then there's room for other family members. So in that way, you can continue to use these mausoleums over time. 
Hey, Robert, I've been in cemeteries where the understanding is we have limited space here in our little ledge of land next to the lake or whatever, and it's been centuries, and your loved one gets a spot as long as his ancestors or her ancestors want to pay essentially the rent for that spot. Mm-hmm. And when there's nobody around anymore that cares anymore, they don't pay the upkeep, they don't pay that rent, right. and that tomb then is free to be uprooted, and the bones go into an ossuary, sure. which is a big hole filled with bones of mm-hmm. forgotten loved ones. Yeah, it's exactly the same with Recoleta. And you make room for the newly dead who mm-hmm. have loved ones who can pay the bill. These mausoleums stay in the same family as long as they continue to pay the maintenance fee. Okay. And uh, there are caretakers of the cemetery that clean and do minor repairs. But what ends up happening is that if there are no family members left or if they decide or if, what if their fortune is gone? Yeah. They can't afford the maintenance fee. Then you're in the ossuary with all then the they rabble. Can sell, they actually, the family <laughs> can sell it and then they'll, they'll either reuse the same mausoleum, just redecorate it maybe uh, a little bit or tear the whole thing down and build a new one. I hadn't thought about that. A family could sell that plot. Yeah. And it's real estate. Tough, hard, hard yeah. times. Ed, thanks for your call. Sure. Thank you. Have Take a good care. day. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Wright about the great cemetery in Buenos Aires, Recoleta. Robert, I'd like to just have you tell a few stories as a tour guide. Sure. You know, this is Halloween time, and cemeteries lend themselves to these stories. One of the most famous corpses, one of the most famous residents yeah. of the cemetery was a woman named Rufina. What's the story? So Rufina Cambaceres uh, was the daughter of a very well-to-do family, uh, in fact, it's said that her mother was having an affair with the president of the time. Nobody really knows for sure. But uh, she had an attack on her birthday, actually, and she kind of passed out at home. They were getting ready to go to an opera. And all of a sudden, they find her completely passed out. They tested to see if she was breathing. They didn't feel the breath. And they thought she had passed away. It's a tragic story in and of itself. So they buried her. And then the next day... Someone went in to go in and check on her, and actually they found that the top of the casket lid had been moved to the side. And what they think is she had a cataleptic attack where she's actually basically in a coma, and her breathing was so low, but she was actually buried alive. She was trapped inside her coffin. And she struggled down there. She struggled. They say that there are scratch marks on, on the underneath side of her coffin. That's why in a lot of cultures you let yeah. the, the corpse lay for a couple of days just because they're not sure if it's You're really, not really dead. sure. I know that's yeah. worked into the uh, traditional Italian kind mm-hmm. of uh, wake. Also, Eva Perone has, has a very fortified crypt. What, what's the story with Eva Perone and why the security? You could probably do a whole program, Rick, about Eva. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, it's, when, it's so controversial. She passed away in 1952. She had uterine cancer. Mm-hmm. And her last public act was basically seeing her husband, Juan Perón, uh, reelected. And uh, she passed away right after that. And they embalmed her body. And they decided to uh, put it on public display. And then uh, when their government was ousted in 1955... Her body is such a big political symbol that the military dictatorship decided they wanted to hide it. So they went in and stole her body. It went on various trips everywhere, but it ended up in Milan, actually, in a cemetery in Milan under a false name. So uh, several decades later, when Perón comes back to power, one of the ways to sort of make amends is to return the body of Eva. And so they actually, uh, Juan Perón was living with his third wife, Isabel, and they were in Franco, Spain. This is in the 70s. And they shipped the body of Eva Perón to him in Madrid. So he's got it. He's reelected president. Then he goes back but leaves Eva in Spain because they're like, oh, this is going to create too much of a havoc. 
And eventually they do bring her back. But then when they bring her back because she's been stolen and moved around and mistreated in her death, too, they decided to build a tomb that was so super fortified that you, you there's no way anybody could break in there any any again. So it's very, very deep and really heavily Ava fortified. So you can see her, but you can't get very close to her. You can't, no. Robert, this has been so fun talking about the Recoleta Cemetery. It's Halloween. I would imagine there's a ghost story relating to Buenos Aires' most historic cemetery. So many. I guess the most famous one would be about one of the caretakers of Recoleta Cemetery who decided to stay there, actually. He worked his whole life caring for these mausoleums, and he eventually could purchase one himself. And they say, they say, that he was so thrilled when it finally got completed that he committed suicide to just sort of be there forever. It's, it was like his lifelong dream was to remain in the cemetery. So he was a grave digger, and he decided to make this his permanent home. home. And to this day... You can hear the keys. Some people say you could hear the keys that he wore on his belt to open all of those tombs that he was taking care of. Ooh. Robert, thank you for, I was going to say, bringing the Recoleta Cemetery to life, but no, putting it to death. De nada. We can go there, Halloween or not, and be impressed. Happy Halloween, Rick. Later in the hour, a clergywoman from Iowa tells us what she learned about the death rituals and beliefs of people she traveled around the world to meet. And next, one of the founders of Atlas Obscura joins us to consider some rather macabre places you can visit. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The world is full of fascinating and mysterious places, and sometimes they might even feel a bit creepy. The folks at Atlas Obscura have made it their mission to highlight the numerous noteworthy places their readers contribute to their website. Co-founder Dylan Thuris is with us right now to recommend catacombs, crypts, and cemeteries that are worth a visit, if you dare. Tell us about a place you visited that gave you goosebumps. We're at 877-333-7425. Dylan, how you doing? I'm ready. I'm ready All for this right. journey. So let's grab the Grim Reaper as our co-guide and uh, hop on a broomstick for some transportation. And I'd like you to be my ghoulish travel agent. Uh, set me up here. Uh, the trip of a lifetime. Where's a place that you'd want to stop first? Well, I think a good starting point would be in Czechia at the Sedlitz Ossuary. If you're going to see one ossuary a structure filled with bones, this is the one to go to. It is a church in which uh, bones have been arranged in elaborate, complex displays, including a enormous bone chandelier uh, ah. that's said to have one bone from every part of the human body plus many more. <laughs> I so love that's it. A, that's an excellent place to begin. You can't get much more elaborate bone architecture than Sedlitz. Now that's in the town of Kutnahora, if I remember correctly? That's correct, absolutely. And you called it Czechia, which is the new term for the Czech Republic. I've been trying to make the switch. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, but it's just a short train ride away from Prague. And if you want bones, I agree, there's no better collection of human bones because it's done with a little artistic flair, isn't it? I mean, wonderful, wonderful challenge if you're the um, person making the chandeliers to take every bone in the human body, decorate it in a way that um, where it all kind of comes together in a nice sort of... a beautiful fixture hanging from the ceiling. That's right. Take me when we're thinking of bones to Paris, deep under the streets, after they decided cemeteries are a waste of space and they're not very hygienic. Let's unearth the cemeteries, free up that land around the churches, 
And what are you going to do with six million skeletons? Well, you're going to arrange them in <laughs> enormous tunnels that uh, run underneath much of Paris. Parisian catacombs are certainly the most famous catacombs in, in the world. And the little section open to the public is a wonderful taste of what's down there. And it is also got some artistic arrangements. You have different arrangements of skulls set into enormous walls of, of femurs, really. But one of the things I love that captures my imagination about the Parisian catacombs is that they are enormous. And the part that's open to the public is actually very small. There's a whole other part that is sort of the domain of cataphiles, of groups in Paris that are obsessed with exploring, mapping, charting, the illicit parts of the catacombs and even throwing enormous events in there. There have been some famous stories about there being an entire underground movie theater that when the police discovered the chairs and that there had been something going on, it was quietly disassembled and was all gone within a, a couple of days. So I, I love that idea, this entire kind of subculture. There's actually tours of underground Paris that take advantage of the fact that it's honeycombed with passages. There's a lot of passages for the sewer, they say if you stretch out all the sewers in Paris, it would go all the way to Istanbul. There's, of course, a lot of tunnels from the metro and the underground. And in the case of the catacombs of Paris, this, I understand, was an old plaster of Paris quarry. We've all heard of plaster of Paris. Well, they had to quarry that. And I was walking around Paris, I remember, a few years ago, and I had white dirt on my feet, on my shoes, and somebody says, oh, you've been in the catacombs. They could just tell that I'd been walking through that plaster of Paris. So they've had secret societies doing their things down there, and as you mentioned now, it's uh, the part that's open to the public anyways is uh, just quite an interesting artistic display. you got your femurs over there and you got your skulls over here, and any tourist can visit the catacombs of Paris. And I should say, if we're doing a spooky tour of Paris, of which there is plenty of, of options, you should probably make a stop in Père Lachaise, one of the greatest cemeteries in the entire uh, world, uh, where there are all kinds of incredible things to visit, but I know there are some wonderful vampire tours of Père Lachaise where you can be taken around by a vampire historian who wants to give you the real story of of Parisian vampires. Oh, my goodness. And I love cemeteries. Of all the cemeteries in Europe, this is the most interesting from an art and a history point of view, uh, from a music point of view. you got great composers from Chopin to Jim Morrison of The Doors there, as far as musicians go. Uh, lots of history. And uh, if you're interested in vampires, you can be there for the, <laughs> at the right time for that tour. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dylan Thuris, and Dylan has written uh, Atlas Obscura. And Atlas Obscura is a chance to uncover some of the world's most fascinating sites. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Scott is on the line from Chicago. Scott, thanks for your call. Oh, hello. Piggybacking on the bones thing, uh, I think the Capuchin crypt in Rome is the most neck-hair-raising place I've ever visited. I would definitely put that in my next trip to Rome. Can you describe uh, it for us, Scott? Tell us what it's like. I, I, I love this idea that the hair on your neck would be raising. Oh, take us into it. Very small. It's divided up into like uh, different rooms, and each room is just decorated with bones and different configurations. And it's just so creepy. I mean, it's the only place where we, I, I still can like remember the smell of the dirt in there. <laughs> you know? It was one of my first trips uh, to Europe, and it just made me kind of like seek out these kind of places. And later on, like the catacombs of Paris. And mm-hmm. I found that. 
Well, you're right. This is one of the ultimate bone experiences in Europe, Scott. It's the Capuchin Crypt in Rome. It's just a, underneath a church, and it's the Capuchin monks have this interesting habit of putting their dead brothers down in the crypt, and when all the flesh is rotted away, they take the bones and they decorate with them. And now, 100 years later, they open it up for visitors, and I know the smell you're talking about there. It's just that fertile dirt, uh, history, mustiness, and I've got a sort of a chill in my spine right now thinking about that because there's always a what seems is not a very friendly monk at the far end of the corridor looking at every tourist because you're not supposed to take photographs and every tourist is trying to get a photograph of all those skulls hanging from the walls and so on. I think that what's really powerful to me is the message because as you leave, you realize, ah, they're not just making some stunt to charge for tourists. There's a spiritual message here and they're reminding all the visitors what we are today, you will be tomorrow, you know. And it's just remind us that halfway through your vacation that uh, we're all mortal creatures. The Capuchin Crypt in Rome is small, as you said, but the one in Palermo in Sicily is much bigger. Dylan, do you have any thoughts on the Capuchin Crypts of Italy? <laughs> if you want sort of spooky religious sites, Italy really is going to be your best bang for your buck. And And the one in Palermo is interesting because it's, it's less of a sort of a strict ossuary where it's bone arrangements, and it's a bit more of a, um, a mummy fashion show. Because <laughs> the bones are still intact. The skeletons are there, and they're even dressed. People decide what they want to wear for eternity, and they're categorized where the policemen are over here, and the brothers are over here, and the women are over here, the children are over here. It, it is a, a unique experience, isn't it? It is, and I actually, I think the point you, you made, Rick, about the sort of memento mori, being reminded of one's mortality, is is really worth keeping in mind when you go to places like this because, again, America's kind of the odd one out here. Most of the rest of the world has a, hmm. a much closer relationship to death and the idea of human and, and even human remains. I mean, in Mexico and yeah. in, in Pamuk, people go and they take out uh, the bones of their ancestors and, and clean yeah. them as, uh, you know, a family day. It's... It is America who is sort of so uncomfortable with this whole thing. So it's it's always good. It's they're, they're wonderful, spooky experiences. And then it's good to sort of take a step back and say, right, what was the reason for this? What was the philosophy? Why was this created? Dylan, that is such a very important reminder. And when I was at the Capuchin Crypt just last year, I made friends with one of the Capuchin monks. And we walked through there. And he told me, this place is a place of joy for me because it helps me not to be afraid of death. You know, he just wanted to remind me that this is just a little blip in time and uh, there's something afterward. Uh, to recognize that this fear of death is a little bit of a, a cultural hang-up that we have here in our culture. I remember being in Romania once, made some friends, and I noticed there was a human skull on the mantle above the fireplace. And they said, oh, that's Grandpa. In a lot of cultures, people still go to the cemetery on, on special days, and they light candles, and they actually celebrate with their loved ones who are no longer uh, in this world. That's right. I love that story about the, the monk and, and be, it being a place of joy because it's, it's a perfect example of it's always worth trying to understand a place from its own cultural context and not just yours. Exactly. That's good travel. Scott, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Dylan. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Atlas Obscura co-founder Dylan Thuris is helping us look at some of the stranger places the world has to offer right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Their best-selling book is now out in its second edition. Right now, they're finishing up a trivia book tour in San Francisco, Boston, L.A., and Brooklyn. 
there's more on their website, atlasobscura.com. And Nancy's calling in from a scary place called Sandwich in Massachusetts. Nancy, thanks for your call. Thanks. I had a question. Um, recently, I, I went to Venice. I visited the three major islands. But I heard about the spooky island of Poveya, I believe it's called. It's Plague Island. It's supposed to be haunted. I wanted to go over there. And then I heard that um, the public isn't allowed and there's no access. And I was wondering how these other people hmm. got to visit the island. Do you know anything about that? Dylan, do you know about the Plague Island, Poveglia, in the Venetian uh, I, Lagoon? I, I, I do, and I know that it is off-limits to, to tourists. I think to gain access, there are sort of two ways. Some people just didn't ask permission. <laughs> but I think other people have gone out there. You know, I think it's possible to get permission from the right people, the Venetian municipal government, but I think it probably requires a little bit of footwork. You could get the plague, and then they'd probably send you there. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's a steep that's price a to pay. You know, one island that you can go to is the Cemetery Island in Venice, and that's a very easy trip, just a five-minute uh, ferry ride away from the main part of Venice. It's a fascinating opportunity to wander through the historic cemetery of that great city. But, um, you know, that was a big deal in the Middle Ages was to quarantine people with the plague. And Venice was a city that was a a seafaring uh, trading city. And uh, you would imagine they don't want to let somebody with the plague come into their town because they know what happens then. You could do a whole tour based on plague sites in Europe. The plague would sweep through and kill a third of the people. And they'd usually be the poor people. And it's not just Europe. I mean, New York is an archipelago which has both islands that were used for quarantine mm-hmm. of tuberculosis uh, victims, and and it has a cemetery island as well. Uh, Hart Island is one of the world's largest paupers' graveyards, and it's huh. still an active use. And this is called Hart Island? H-A-R-T, Hart Island. Right. It's mostly off limits to, yeah. the, to the public, although it's starting to open up a little bit more. All right. Hey, well, Nancy, next time you're in Venice, sneak on to Poveglia and uh, send us a postcard. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Happy Halloween. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dylan Thuris. His book is Atlas Obscura, and we're talking about the creepy places in his collection of fascinating sites in the world. Dylan, one place that you talk about which sounds just fascinating is India's Skeleton Lake. Take us there. This is one of these stories uh, that when someone submitted it to Atlas Obscura, I was sure it was a fake. I was sure they were trying to, to get one over on us. But it turns out it is all real. So the story of Skeleton Island is that in the 1940s, a, a forest ranger stumbled across this lake high in the Himalayan mountains, and it was a little frozen lake that was filled with skeletons. Mm. It was filled with skulls and bones. And first they thought maybe this had to do with World War II, and and it turns out that the bones had been there for an incredibly long time. They'd been there for 1,200 years. But no one could figure out quite what had killed the people in Skeleton Lake. And it wasn't until the mid-2000s, 2005, that a team went out there. They examined the skeletons, and the forensic evidence was very odd. All of these bones, all these skeletons had similar injuries, which is blunt force trauma to the heads and shoulders, but nothing that matched up with what would have hmm. been an attack or a fight. There, there like was they no were weapons just around. like pummeled by golf balls. Exactly. And it turns out that there's a folk song in the area that tells the story of trespassers from a, another land, and these people were actually travelers. They were not local who were struck down by an angry goddess who rained hailstones as hard as iron from the sky. And that is the, that is the current consensus, is that the 
Bones in Skeleton Lake were all travelers killed in a freak hailstorm. Wow. And it's just, hard. it's kind of, you know, one of these things that is hard to even wrap your, your mind around. Huh. But there it is. And, and they're still up there. And you can organize a, a hike up to the site. That's amazing. There's also a, an island in, uh, or a cemetery in Bali, Trunyan Cemetery, that's famous for tons of skulls on an island. What's, what's that all about? Again, a, another example of, of cultural differences around death. But at Trunyan Cemetery, you know, in this small village, when a relative dies, they're taken across a, a lake on a little ferry ride, and they're brought to this place where their bodies are essentially just laid on the ground in little thatched huts, little sort of straw thatched huts. And over time, nature does its work, and all that's left are the bones of your relatives. And then and then these bones are taken up, and they're stacked at the base of this uh, banyan tree, a kind of sort of fig mm-hmm. tree. And you'd think that this might be sort of a, a gross place because there are bodies kind of on the ground. But in fact, the, the tree itself puts out this like strong, spicy sort of scent mm. that masks whatever other kind of bad smells would be there. And the place is really, it's quite peaceful and meditative and people come and spend time with their relatives there. I've got the ashes of my mother in my living right. room on the shelf. And at first, I didn't know if I'd be comfortable with that. But I am. And it's an exercise for us in our culture to not be afraid of death and to realize it's part of life. Just like people in Bali would have this memorial to their loved ones who still are with them. Uh, You know, one of the most interesting sites in Europe is Madame Tussauds Wax Gallery. And today it's a very commercial venture with uh, Michael Jackson and, and, uh, you know, Barack Obama and uh, Vladimir Putin. But uh, originally it started out quite historic and it started out as quite a bloody tradition. Give us the the backstory of Madame Tussaud's um, wax gallery. Yeah, I find this fascinating because these, you know, sort of Madame Tussaud wax museums are, are so touristy and they feel like such tourist traps. But her story, it's a great Halloween story. And uh, she was born in the 1760s and she actually grew up with an anatomist uh, stepfather who and taught her about bodies and anatomical uh, examination. And, and she took this and, and translated it at a particularly bloody time in French history, which is basically she was there uh, during the French Revolution and supposedly would even wait at the base of the guillotine for recently beheaded uh, heads to roll down so she could do studies of them and and cast uh, death masks and then go and turn around and create a wax model of that figure. And uh, she had a real sense and a real flair for presentation. And it's in one way, it's something that connects her original work with these kind of tourist traps of today, which is that hmm. after doing this work in France, she left to kind of make her fortune. She went to, to England and opened up a wax museum that was sort of half horror show, half kind of criminals. She made wax models of Burke and Hare, who were famous um, resurrectionists who would dig up corpses and eventually decided digging up corpses was too much work, so they just murdered people. Yeah. So she had she had examples of that in her wax museum. And then she also had examples of King George and, and other uh, royal figures and would pay money to create really elaborate clothing that matched their, you know, royal garb. And so she understood that these were things that would draw people in and for a while had the most popular tourist site in Europe. Dylan, this has really been fun to take Atlas Obscura, all the fascinating sights in Atlas Obscura, and see it through the lens of Halloween. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a creepy Halloween. 
Thank you. A clergywoman travel writer takes us on a life-affirming trip with the not-so-grim reaper. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Family difficulties forced Episcopal deacon Lori Erickson to explore how our experience of the end of life varies around the world. As a travel writer, she's explored Mayan temples, the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, and even tourist destination graveyards. Lori Erickson joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share insights from her global tour of death and dying, which she writes about in her book, Near the Exit. Lori, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Rick. So you're an Episcopal deacon, and, you know, pastors deal with uh, life's stages and, of course, death. But you add to that the experience of travel. How has travel shaped the way you view death? Well, I do have a somewhat unusual combination of interests and specialties. I do think that there are surprising connections between travel and death. I have always looked to journeys to help me figure out things and to help me see how other people have dealt with some of these big questions of life. And many of the world's holy sites have a component of death in them in one way. They might have been hallowed because of some tragedy or they might be healing shrines. But I think there are a lot more correspondences between travel and death than people might realize. So when I introduce a radio show, we're going to talk about Near the Exit, a book about death, (laughs) the not-so-grim reaper. Um, Mm -hmm. You write that it's about death, but it's not necessarily depressing. How can you give us a, a more joyful spin on death? Well, one of the truths, the perennial truths that I discovered, rediscovered for myself in researching and writing the book is that the knowledge that we're going to die paradoxically is one of the best things we can do to live life more fully and with more zest. And I think, too, that part of the reason why death is such a problematic subject is that we usually encounter it in a time of great grief. One of the reasons, I think, to travel with the Grim Reaper, as I say in my book, is the chance to have a more philosophical perspective on Mm. death, to see the ways in which other cultures have dealt with it, Mm. to see mummies in Egypt, for example, that was a strong experience for me, and to get the chance to think about it, you know, with a bit more of distance and to see it as part of, you know, this grand parade of life that we all experience. Yeah, it's a big package. And it's interesting you say that because just a couple months ago, I was in the famous Capuchin Monastery in Palermo in Sicily. Oh. And mm-hmm. you're surrounded by hundreds of corpses mm-hmm. and they're, they're skeletons still clothed, hanging on the wall all around you. I was with a Capuchin friar a monk who took me on a walk, and he gave me a little sermon as we walked, and he was joyful. And I asked him, why are you joyful? And he just gave me the most beautiful comment about how all these corpses were a reminder to him that there's so much more to life than what we embrace here in our in our mortal little stint on earth. And for him, he had a strong belief in the afterlife, this was just a, a celebration that uh, this is a springboard to something else. Is that something that could resonate with other religions, or is is that a a Christian approach to death? Oh, absolutely. I think there are a lot of correspondences across cultures and uh, across religious traditions. You know, the details vary, of course, but I think many, many people of faith have a sense that death is not the end. 
And that was one of the really fascinating things for me to explore these beliefs as I traveled around the world. For me, one of the things I describe in one of the chapters is about talking with a Zen uh, teacher in Crestone, Colorado, and about the lessons of having an open-air cremation ground in this small mountain town. And I felt like I had been given an incredible teaching uh, just in our, our afternoon conversation, talking about what that meant. Tell me more about that. What is an open-air cremation ground, and uh, who uses it, and, and what are the lessons people learn there? It's, it's in a remote spiritual center in the town of Crestone in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Crestone is near uh, the Great Sand Dunes National uh, Park. And so an open-air cremation ground um, is somewhat similar in some ways to Hindu traditions on the banks of the Ganges in India, where corpses are burned in public. And it is not something that's part of the American way of death at all. But in the United States, if you are Hindu, there are places where you can have that done. But what makes Crestone unusual is that this is a resource for the people of the town. You have to be from Crestone in order to ask that this be done with your remains after you've died. And Crestone is a very small town. It has only 150 people, though there are, I think, about 1,500 that live in the surrounding county. Okay. And so it's not like they're having these all the time. But when they do occur, you ask me about the lessons that people learn from them. I think the Zen teacher put it very well. He said that to watch a body being burned is the ultimate lesson in impermanence and that it's a visceral sense of how we are not going to last in Mm. this form. Mm. I did not see a cremation, but I talked to a number of people whose loved ones had been cremated in this way. And all of them talked about what an elemental sort of experience it was that they're often done at dawn and it's a beautiful spot on the high plains with the Sangre de Cristo mountains in the distance. Mm-hmm. And they light the pyre just as the first rays of dawn are coming over the horizon. And I think the other thing about this ritual is that it, it's communal. One of the traditions they have is that everyone comes forward and puts a, a branch of juniper wood mm. on the fire. And so everyone puts something into the fire And I think that's a beautiful metaphor, too, for how a death affects all of us. We're all part of that dissolution of spirit. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with the travel writer and Episcopal deacon, Lori Erickson, who's journeyed around the globe to explore issues connected with death and dying. Right now, we're looking at what she shares in her book. It's called Near the Exit. Lori's also an author of a book called Holy Rover, Journeys in Search of Mystery, Miracles, and God. Her website is laurierickson.net. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Marty's calling in from Atlanta. Marty, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Lori. Thanks for taking my call. This is a fascinating subject to me. Um, I grew up in San Francisco where there was a big Irish community, and I was very familiar with Irish wakes, which are raucous and celebratory of life of the deceased, I was exposed in traveling to something I'd never seen before. I was in Hanoi, Vietnam, and visited the Museum of Ethnology. And out back, they had several exhibits, one of which was a house, uh, large enough, I suppose, for 30 or more bodies, but really fascinating and 
shocking uh, piece of it was around the outside of this long house were carved images of men and women. Obviously, in flagrante delecto, the men had huge phalluses. Women, a lot of them were pregnant. And it, it looked like an orgy to me. I don't know if it was really an orgy, but um, I've since read a little more about this place. And they are symbolizing fertility and birth, which I assume completes the circle of of life. I don't know, but I had never seen anything like this before. It was fascinating. So this was a burial house, and it was decorated with all of these symbols and, and demonstrations of fertility. Lori, that sounds like an interesting insight into the culture in Vietnam. Mm, absolutely. I have not been there, have not seen quite that intertwining of death and fertility, but it doesn't surprise me. I think a universal response to death is to want to embrace life. And that's a vivid example of that from the sound of it. You know, when you think of um, vivid and and full of life, uh, you also think of Day of the Dead celebrations. Uh, You wrote about that in Chicago, Lori. The Chicago neighborhood of Pilsen has the country's largest Day of the Dead celebration. And I was fortunate to visit that as I was experiencing the grief of my brother's death and my mother entering memory care in a nursing home. And it was a, a wonderful enactment of a different sort of philosophy of life, uh, or excuse me, of death, of really embracing it, celebrating it, you know, the, the humor of it in, in some ways, you know, all the, the Day of the Dead skeletons dressed like brides and riding bicycles and things mm-hmm. like that. And this combination of enfolding mourning and death into community life, into celebration. And if there's one practice that I could point to of all that I experienced in researching the book, it's Day of the Dead, that I think I think the rest of us should take this on. There's a lot of wisdom built into it. I was just flying over towns in Guatemala, and it was during this time, and the towns were kind of ramshackle and pretty dreary, but the cemeteries were just festivals of color and Mm, flower mm -hmm, and people, mm -hmm, and it really was mm -hmm. that wonderful celebration of life in the context of a cemetery. Lori Erickson has written Near the Exit. It's about her world travels to observe how different traditions help people deal with the realities of death. She recommends a number of spiritual travel itineraries on her spiritualtravels.info website. You'll also find links to our guests with each week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Sally's on the phone from Coopville in Washington. Sally, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call, Rick. Hi, Rick and Lori. I had the pleasure of traveling to one of your favorite towns in Italy, Rick, Cornelia. Is that how you say it? In the Cinque Terre, the one town of the five towns on the coastline that's up on a bluff high above the water instead of down on the water. Yes, and it was late winter, and I saw a service going on in the church and standing on the outskirts discovered it was a funeral ceremony. And after the service, the church had been full and there were also people sprawled out. And this was before the tourists were there. So it seemed the whole town had come out and they joined together to amble up the steep, narrow street even the oldest people of the village and the youngest children of the village, 
everybody was present. And I joined the throng, and walking up that narrow lane and steep and over the railroad tracks and up to the High Bluff Cemetery, I have just was so struck by the communal support, the sense of strengthening the cords of community connection, the dignity, the support to the family, the valuing of the individual. Mm. I had never sensed or experienced anything that looked like this, and I thought, now that is the way I would love to grieve my loved ones who pass and anyone in the town who, who would pass to be present and acknowledge life together, that real sense of life together. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be great, both in life and in death, to be together as a village, as a town. You know, I've been really impressed by that in specifically the Cinque Terre, as you're talking about, and in so many countries and cultures as we travel. To me, in the Cinque Terre, in a village like you're talking about, people are remembered after they've departed. And and every week, loved ones go up to the cemetery just to be with their loved ones and remember times together and to bring flowers. And uh, they always say that people with the best views in the Cinque Terre are the people who have their final resting place on the bluff above the town. Laurie, <laughs> 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 do, you, do you think that's uh, unique to Italy? Or is that sort of sentiment, uh, have you found that in different cultures? Well, I think many cultures that have closer ties to their traditional roots do death much better than we do. And I think part of that is bonds of community that tie childhood friends together and multi-generations together. But I do think that we can learn something from mm-hmm. these traditions, and we can't just copy them, but we can we can do death better than we do, I think. Death really is about mourning, I think. Uh, it's how do people who are still here on Earth deal with this? Uh, how do we mourn mm-hmm. properly? You write about how Victorian mourning customs continue to influence us here in the United States. Is that good or not good? What's your take on Victorian mourning customs? In learning about Victorian mourning customs, it made me grateful not to be a Victorian woman because uh, (laughs) there were a lot of them, and they were very complicated, and they would require that someone who had suffered a loss would have to wear mourning clothes for a long time, and these were very, very specific instructions. And I think that that sort of goes overboard. On the other hand, I think in current culture, often the only public recognition that people have of a loss other than a service itself is Facebook, you hmm. know, where there's a you know, a flurry of comments and expressions of sympathy and, and that's sort of it, you know, 24 hours and then it's over. And I think what the Victorians knew is that it is nice to have some kind of public symbol that indicates to people that you are grieving and, and they understood that truth. And so I'm not quite sure how to, you know, thread that needle somewhere in between the Victorian overemphasis on mourning and what we have now, which sort of expects people to get over to get over it quickly, or even if you're not over it, don't burden anyone else with your sorrow. It's so interesting how this is a, a universal sort of challenge for us: how to deal with our mortality mm-hmm. and and how it draws us closer to god or wondering what's going to happen next and all that sort of thing and we can learn from our travels sally thanks for your call thank you rick this is travel with rick steves we're talking with laurie erickson her book is near the exit travels with the not so grim reaper 
Lori, you're an Episcopalian pastor. You're a leader in the Christian faith. And I was struck by how important it is for you to have your ashes scattered in some place that you care about. Is that just a fun thing for you, or is it part of your faith? Why is that so important to you? Well, I do like the idea of having my remains, or remains in general, put in a place where people you love can come and remember you and honor you. And I think that some kind of consecrated ground is is important, but I define consecrated ground in a, in a broader sense. And many people want to have their ashes scattered, for example, in a, in a place that holds great meaning for them. It might be, um, oh, a summer cabin or the place where they grew up or a beautiful mountain hike that, that they've taken multiple times in their life. And so you know, we can hallow those places in a variety of ways. But I think part of religious faith in Christianity and many other traditions is that we honor we honor the body. It's not just dust when we're done with it. And that's a lot of the rituals of mourning of death have mm. to do with, with well, that's um, interesting. treating the body, the body with respect. More than the soul, mm-hmm. because I'm inclined to think, okay, your body's just garbage now. It's the soul that matters. But you're right. The body is something that deserves that honor also. Mm-hmm. Let's just wrap up our discussion with with a little reflection from you on and how your travels have made you more ready to face your own mortality. Part of it is simply the experience of researching a book and writing a book really forced me to come to terms with what I thought and helped me sort of pick up one pebble on the sand and the beach after another and examine it to see, well, do I believe that? Do I believe that? And the last chapter in the book is Assisi, and I chose that deliberately because I think of the places that I visited, being in Assisi, walking in the footsteps of, of St. Francis, really helped pull together the different threads of this experience of writing a book about travel and death. Mm. And what you mentioned, I think, is the central insight that I gained, uh, that Francis called death his sister. Uh, you know, He's famous for saying brother, son, and sister moon, but also sister death was part of that. And and that sort of naming of death as kin, as family, mm. I think there are profound truths in that. It's not something foreign. It's something that comes to everyone. You know, you may not have the best relationship with your siblings, with your sister, but there's still a tie there. You know, she may live halfway across the globe or she may live down the street. But at some point, you know that you are going to have a contact with her. And and so that metaphor, I think, works really well. And, you know, talking about that, I'm just, I can't help but think of the beautiful fresco in the Basilica of St. Francis in Assisi, where Francis is actually embracing Sister Death, this bedraggled, yes. a menacing mm-hmm. character that doesn't mm-hmm. need to be menacing. And in a way, it's a triumph <laughs> over death yeah. to embrace death. Yeah. And that is key to the, the whole Christian approach that Francis uh, Uh, loved about how do we deal with our mortality. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Laurie Erickson, thank you so much for uh, giving so much thought to this and then sharing it in your book, Near the Exit, Travels with the Not-So-Grim Reaper. Best wishes. Thank you for having me, Rick. You bet. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmara Hall. We get website support from Amara Kitnacone and Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York and KSUI Iowa Public Radio for their help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, 
and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.